Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Roxy, how do you use your difference to make a difference? Yeah. One of the big ways I use my difference, and I think it really embodies my approach, is that I want to show up and be real. I will always tell people, I will use my lived experience, I will share my stories, I will be vulnerable. I will share the mistakes I've made because I want people to see that it's possible to make mistakes and to learn and grow. I want to be able to gently coach people and say, hey, you know, I see you did something I don't like. Let me tell you about it because I want you to be able to do better. And so being able to be real and authentic and vulnerable is one of the ways that I invite other people to take that risk for themselves. How you day, how you day. That was the voice of Dr. Roxy Manning. Now, this was one of my favorite conversations of the year so far because I always love when someone is really reflective and provides framework. And in her book, I'm going to put the link to two books in the show notes, one she wrote by herself and one she co-wrote. There are various amounts of frameworks that you can use to understand how to have the anti-racist discussion and in addition to that, how to embrace your humanity, especially when you're challenging any type of supremacy culture. We had a wide range of conversation to range from different ways to approach conflict, how to understand internalized messages of anti-blackness, um, the, the the reason privilege is often, you know, blindfolded essentially, and strategies for recognizing those moments of microaggression and how to essentially react to those instances when they come up. I'm hopeful that you do this and listen to this rather, listen to this episode with family, with friends and people that you work with, just because I feel like the best way that we can combat all the ills of society is if we collectively work on, you know, listening to experts like Dr. Manning and then coming up with the things that came up in ourselves. You know, when you have that reflection and it leads to action, there is a lot of progression. <laughs> Anyways, enjoy the episode. And as always, thank you for your support. I always love it when you all leave reviews. So please do if you can. Enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Dr. Roxy Manning. She's a clinical psychologist and certified center for nonviolent communication trainer. She brings decades of service and experience to work interrupting explicitly and implicitly oppressive attitudes and cultural norms. So this is going to be fun. Dr. Manning has worked, consulted, and provided training across the U.S. with businesses, nonprofits, and government organizations wanting to move towards equitable and diverse workplace cultures, as well as internationally in over 10 countries with individuals and groups committed to social change. She also works as a psychologist in San Francisco, serving the homeless and disenfranchised mentally ill population. She's the author of How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, Embracing Our Full Humanity to Challenge White Supremacy, and the co-author with Sarah Payton of the companion text, The Anti-Racist Heart, a self-compassion and activism handbook. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm so looking forward to this. 
No, the, the pleasure is mine. You know, I, and Dr. Manning, I got a few questions. <laughs> yeah, but first, call me Roxy. Call me Roxy. <laughs> we thought, I knew I knew this was gonna happen. I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna have my way. I'm gonna say Dr. Manning. But Roxy, it is Roxy. Um, I mm-hmm. I'm always curious about the the journey to where we mm-hmm. we uh you know we all go to and how we find our passion. So, mm-hmm. what led you down this path? of wanting to help dismantle systems of oppression and wanting to create anti-racist environments? Mm. I mean, part of it is I'm a black woman, so people might not be able to see me. I'm a black woman. And I didn't always understand about racism in the United States. I'm an immigrant. And when I got here, you know, there's a huge divide between the Afro-Caribbean population and the experience of black Americans in the US. So I had to learn about what it meant to be a black American and some of the unique ways that racism shows up. And it took a while, but I first understood how I was being impacted by racism. And then I realized I didn't want to both um, be putting it out there because I had taken on some of these values, right? We can't help it. We grew up in these systems. So I had to learn how to undo it inside of myself. And then I wanted to help other people learn how to undo it. And, you know, the other pieces, I got kids. I have three kids and I really want to create a better world for them and all the other kids who are coming up. It, 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 you know, it's interesting hearing you, you talk about your Afro-Caribbean roots, right? You know, I'm, I'm from Nigeria, but, you know, I grew up in five countries, four continents. And when I first interacted with, with people from different backgrounds, I always, it was clear to me that a lot of mm-hmm. colonial structures and, and racist structures that really done a successful job i hate to say of dividing us from our stories and and mm-hmm. I, I i always say blackness has range and my experience is is a little different from yours in the sense that i was always exposed to american culture at such a young age my father being a diplomat and i, I remember mm-hmm. the first time someone told me i was like it was i think it was a white person yes it was a white a european that said you, you're black but you're different from that guy and he Ooh. was he was an African-American and, I, and you know, how kids talk. And mm-hmm. it's, you started understanding the inner rate, you know, the, the dynamics amongst ourselves, you know, accents uh, mm-hmm. come into play, you know, the color of your skin, the texture of your hair. And so I, I can imagine your awakening of understanding how explicit <laughs> uh, some of these mm-hmm. things and now it's just come there. And then you then reflected on yourself where you're wondering if you are perpetuating or even inherited some, mm-hmm. um, I guess, white supremacist ideas. So I, I want to explore those things because I think right now we're in a time where people don't like to have nuanced discussions. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for them to, to reconcile how they can be part of the problem and the solution. So I'm curious about your solution and when you started realizing you needed to unlearn certain attitudes and how that led to you being an advocate. Yeah. I mean, part of the challenge is that you know, just like anybody in the world, I also wanted to be accepted. I wanted to belong. I wanted to be successful. And (laughs) you get it. And part of the way we learned to do that was we were told, you don't want to be like those Black people, right? Like when I came to the United States and I went into school, all of the teachers who were celebrating me were celebrating me, honestly, about things that weren't really under my control. So I came from a country where, you know, there were a lot of Black folks where I was successful. I was advanced in school. And they were making it like, oh, I was doing this all by myself, that it was my individual achievements, not that I had been in a different context. And so when they were lifting me up, I didn't realize it at that young age, but 
I was buying into that because it's like, oh, everyone likes me because I'm the smart person. I'm the mm -hmm. successful person. But nobody was saying you're smart and successful because your parents had a very different context than all of these children that you're growing up with. Right. And it's not their fault that they're not succeeding. It's that there's this whole systemic racism. Yeah. And I bought into that. It was like the way that I could be accepted was to be that person for all the white teachers who were celebrating me. And it took yeah. a long time to realize both the challenges and how problematic that was and also the limitations of that. You know, kind of playing that game only gets you so far. It's pitting us against each other and it's not to serve us. 100%. I mean, divide and conquer is the the uh, crown jewel of any of these white supremacist ideas. But in my line of work, we were in similar lines of work. I, I, I'm always amazed by the amount of people who are you know, vocally saying they want to do the work, but don't understand the rules of the systems they're operating in. And to mm -hmm. me, I think it's the you have to do it the other way around. You have to understand the systems, especially if you want to be an ally. I'm, I'm just talking to allyship here. If you want to be mm -hmm. an ally, you need to understand how systems systematically oppress and suppress people so that you can understand what exactly you're fighting, right? Mm -hmm. We have an endless amount of platitudes that many people know what to say you know i'm so sorry you know, i'm sorry you know that sucks yeah. so we need to push back i can't believe he she they said that but why mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. what led down that path that is a and and that's often the question i often ask when i'm doing workshops or, or trainings i'm like well i i need you to be able to understand why and be able to articulate that in order to get there and you did that for yourself Mm -hmm. And part of what you're saying is so true. Like when you ask, why did I get into this work? This was part of it because I had a lot of white folks that I was working with who were clearly committed to these ideals, wanted to be allies. And they would always like say, OK, either I know what to I, I know what to do. I know that I'm supposed to be doing something, but I don't know how to do it. Or when they were called out, the first things that they would say is, I'm so sorry. And yeah. I always tell people that I'm so sorry is often code for, okay, can we stop talking about it now? You know, I feel like that's the point. <laughs> so don't start there. Don't start there. So yeah. helping people learn how to have these conversations was really essential. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you've obviously created quite the career for yourself. Now you've had, I mean, two books, uh, mm -hmm. one you wrote and one you co-wrote. And the books you wrote, you know, how to have anti-racist conversations and then, you know, the the companion activism handbook for self-compassion. I, I believe they go hand in hand with the times we live in today. You mm -hmm. believe that we have artificial divisions between individuals and groups. And so, uh, well, I'm curious as to why you believe that. And then what strategies you feel like we can have for conflict, a resolution. So... No matter what, like we, racism is a thing. And, you know, I, I hope by now people really get this. Absolutely. <laughs> race is not a thing. It's artificial. It's constructed. But racism is a thing, right? However, we've constructed race. We've given it meaning and we've used it to divide groups. Mm -hmm. We've used it to lift up some groups and put down others. And even like this week, the Supreme Court decisions, right? Right, Some of these right. decisions were specifically about race, even though they were coded and they were about affirmative action, they were honestly about race. And there's been a lot of conversations about that right now. So it's really clear from anybody who looks at history, who looks at the way different systems are working in current society, that we are still a very racist society that is using this artificial construct of race to divide groups, to privilege certain groups, and to keep other groups in their place. 
Yeah. So I don't even think that that's, I'm hoping that for most of your listeners, that this is, this isn't even a question. So what can we do about it? I think the first thing that I like to have people start at is to think about, okay, so if racism is a thing, where are you trying to go? What are you trying to do? And a lot of times I've worked with people who are like, well, we've got to like overcome racism. And for some people, the way that we do that is we're changing the seesaw. If right now, and I'm going to use black folks, right? Just for a shorthand, if black folks right. are at the bottom and white folks are at the top, we got to change that and like lift up black folks. But sometimes they're like, now we just got to change the seesaw completely. So black folks are on the top and white folks are on the bottom. And for me, that's actually still contributing to the problem. It's still making a world where there are these groups and one group has it, one group doesn't. And so I've used Dr. Martin Luther King's concept of beloved community as part of the foundation of my ultimate long-term vision. What I want to create is that world where we are all thriving, where it doesn't matter what the color of my skin is, what my background is, what my ethnicity is. I have what I need to thrive. And that means that I want to be able to talk about and dismantle racism in a way that we're all having what we need, not that one is above the other. And I think that's an important, almost like interrogation that we need to ask ourselves, what am I working towards? What's my ultimate goal here? I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like, yes, the social constructs are very artificial, but the effects are very real. And mm -hmm. the results of the hierarchical <laughs> social constructs that s systems are built upon have created this sense of zero-sum game. Now, even now, like you're talking about the Supreme Court, it's not that the affirmative action was always a perfect way to solve the problem, but without that in place, the the current biases and systems would not have made it, uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> would not have tried at least to, to look deeper within themselves, to interrogate themselves the way you're asking about whether mm -hmm. they're actually working on the accessibility issues, right? You know, at the same time, you have legacy students. And for those listening out mm -hmm. to the United States, you know, legacy is usually people that, you know, maybe you're an alumni and and mm -hmm. you have a kid, a kid or a family member just coming in there, you, you might get a, a high priority based on whatever you've done for the university that you went to. And the fact that we can't intellectually sometimes <laughs> mm -hmm. look at both of those things, sometimes I think it's part of the problem. It's not necessarily this either or thing. It's like, okay, so if we're going to try and solve this and we're mm -hmm. trying to approach, um, people can't see me here, uh, meritocracy in, in quotes here, we need to figure out how we are assigning and defining merit and how the definition of merit impacts the society that we live in. Mm -hmm. But we don't do that work. Right. We don't. And then part of that is like even the question of merit becomes problematic. Right. Yeah. Because when I look at who has access, like when I was in school, <laughs> I was lucky. I was ahead when I came to the United States educationally. So yeah. when I went to like the little public high school, little public elementary school in Harlem that I was in, that school didn't have resources. If I had started from kindergarten in that school, I would not have been the person I am, right? 100%. But when we tell people like, well, you just didn't work hard enough, we're completely ignoring the fact that you're not giving me the tools to work hard enough with, right? So yeah. if I'm waiting until you get to high school and saying you have merit, but I haven't set you up with the equal resources to show what you can do, What's that merit based on? It's based on the unequal access to resources. It's another form of racism. And so the ways that we 
hide the impact of racism and then we kind of cherry pick what are we going to focus on that's going to help us show that we're being equitable but it's really just another way that's entrenching some of the consequences of racism is so often ignored it's very much so um and okay so now at this point yeah i i, I know someone is listening and saying okay I, that's an important <laughs> thing you brought up but i i want to know how to deal with this within my family because mm -hmm. you know I have someone that lives in Florida and, and they tend to side with DeSantis, another person that likes uh, Greg Abbott. And again, these are governors of the mm -hmm. states, Greg Abbott of Texas, and they don't like DEI, but I want to be an ally. And mm -hmm. I love this person, so I can't just discard that person. How would you say, <laughs> what are mm -hmm. strategies that you have to um, for them, I guess, for this said person who is looking to mm -hmm. have an effective dialogue while feeling empowered at the same time? Mm -hmm. So the first thing I would say is thank you to that person, right? Thank you, yeah. thank you, thank you. Because one of the things that I want all of those folks who want to be allies to really get is that when they step up and they have these conversations with their family members, it means I don't have to. It means someone else is doing some of that education and some of that work. So right. that's one of the huge things that you can do. So how do we do that effectively? The first piece is this is something that I think allies are especially positioned to do empathize with that person. The person who's like saying, I really support DeSantis. Like there's a reason that they're wanting to support them. Maybe uh -huh. this is a person who's kind of like economically struggling and they're thinking they've bought into the idea that the DeSantis policies are going to help them like regain their jobs or become successful again or make up for the business that they lost. And if we just keep ignoring the reasons why they're believing these things and just come down like that's racist, you can't believe these things, they feel completely missed. I don't necessarily want to have to empathize with this person as a black person when they're saying all of these racist things. So if you can empathize with them and say, hey, Han, why do you believe that? Why is this important to you? What are you hoping you're getting out of listening to this person? What needs do you see that person's strategies of meeting for you? They can feel understood. And when people feel understood, they're more willing to look for other strategies. Well, I see why that's important to you. I, I understand how... You think that, you know, maybe restricting immigration is going to give more jobs here. But now that you see that I really want you to have a job, are you willing to look at why I think this might not work? Mm -hmm. Have these conversations with people that start from a place of understanding why they're doing that in a way that I might not have the heart to do that if I feel really slammed by a lot of the racism that's coming at me. So yeah. empathize first. Um, I often talk, connect before you correct them, Right. Tonight before you cry, I like that. That's you, you know, in a way, this is also another access, access conversation, right? So there's a mm -hmm. privilege that some people have in the allyship where it's maybe proximity uh, mm -hmm. to, to whiteness that based on who you are, just a family background, and so there's that inherent understanding that you're not against them, mm -hmm. and so it's like, okay, I hear you, um, and you know, I've I don't have a history of dismissing you, but. How about we talk about mm -hmm. another side and there's a willingness to listen where if maybe you and I were talking, our biases could kick in and say, oh, well, of course you believe that you're black, right? You, that's, mm -hmm. you, you always. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the actual power of that empathy mm -hmm. is probably uh, in the someone's ability to get that person to reflect and not just react. Just like, hey, mm -hmm. think about what you're saying. <laughs> 
Yeah. And yeah. connected to that, <laughs> connected to that ability to help somebody really reflect is that just like you're saying, if we are similar, like maybe we're from the same family, we're from the same background, I have trust that you understand me. And so when you start to empathize with my experience, you can also call me in about our shared values, you know? So I hear you. I hear how much you're really looking for a job. But I also know that in our family, we also like, I have friends who are Jewish, right? It's like our family was, you know, Holocaust survivors, and we don't ever want to see that happen to anyone else. And so when I see what the scientist is doing, I'm worried that it's going down that path. Right. This is right. in, in line with our values. And you get it because I'm like, oh, you're right. You're calling me to awareness about something that is part of my family's values that I trust. Yes, 100%. I love this. Um, yeah. Now, so the other side of this is then many people mm -hmm. who might perpetuate anti-Blackness. I think sometimes... Mm -hmm. Obviously, anti-blackness is you know sits on the anti-racism, but there's a specific difference in anti-blackness mm -hmm. <laughs> when it comes to anti-racism work, and and sometimes I get a little concerned uh, when a lot of people put it under one umbrella without understanding the nuance, right? And so mm -hmm. they're like, oh, it's anti-racism, anti-racism, but every group has a different thing. So we saw that with uh, COVID, with um, our you know Asian brothers and sisters and 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 people of uh, mm -hmm. that are identify as non-binary, and then same thing with a lot of what's happening here with, with specific black culture. Mm -hmm. How, how are, you know, let me ask this this way. What are some ways to understand the internalized messages of anti-blackness mm -hmm. currently in our culture? Ooh, let me think for a second. It's for me, it's kind of connected to unconscious bias and microaggressions, right? Yeah. And so when I think about the internalized messages, I think about them all having a purpose. One of the core beliefs I have is that every single thing we do, every single thing that we believe yes. has an ultimate purpose. Sometimes we're aware of it, sometimes we're not. And so some of the messages are meant to keep Black folks in their place, you know, to put it baldly. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. It's like, I want you to understand that for instance, you're here to serve me. So if I think you're being too loud, it's because you're taking attention away from what is the attention that I'm needing or the focus that I'm wanting to have centered on my experience. I might not be consciously aware of that, that this is what I'm thinking, but a lot of it is this sense, this kind of like uneasy sense of like, wait a second, why is that person getting all the attention and this sense of wrongness about it? And I act on it and I'm not even aware of what it's coming from. So I really have people think about what is that hidden message that um, kind of re-centering that person into where I think they need to be because of their identity that fits into all of the standards of white supremacy that we're not even thinking about? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a beautiful way to look at it because, uh, you know, and what's one thing I do is I always mm -hmm. have people uh, reflect on the current standards and norms that mm -hmm. they reflect on so we can say professionalism for example right there's a certain standard and, and you know i'll go through this with people well tell me what you're using to define professionalism and invariably if you look at schools or sometimes uh, 
even now sometimes it's the workplaces someone will bring up something like hair for example mm -hmm. and then i'm like well what standard are you looking at it do you are you looking at it from mm -hmm. the defaults <laughs> um you know 4c hair that many people like me might have or mm -hmm. are you looking at it from a loose wavy you know look and, and if you go to the fashion industry what is the beauty mm -hmm. standard that you're looking at you know some people will say slim nose and thin, and i'm like wait what 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 are you you know what are you mm -hmm. doing <laughs> like no are, but some people say no there's some black people with slim nose like but are you <laughs> you can't just no, that's not intellectually <laughs> yeah so it's it's a lot of those type of conversations where the mm -hmm. features the the hair texture the color mm -hmm. of the skin right it, it plays a role into all that and what you are then marketing as mm -hmm. beautiful as successful as professional mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. and, you know, you've created such a system where even black people and even mm -hmm. other people of color will participate in that because that's the only way they've seen as a way of success. Yes. I mean, even when I'm thinking about professionalism, I always like to talk around the whole spectrum of like different work experiences, right? Yes. I have a teen who was a gymnast. And one of the standards is that your hair needs to be like in this ponytail and this bun. And now, you know, the amount of gel and stuff that my child with curly hair has to do to get that hair to like lie into the spun. It's like some of the black kids are not going to be able to do this. And there isn't ever an acknowledgement about is the standard that you're promoting as professional or appropriate actually achievable for people with different hair textures. And if it's not, then how is that not racist? How am I not acknowledging that? Even if that's not my intention, it's having that same racist impact. 100%. So, so, so important. Yeah. And I also like to talk about it in terms of like clothing and language. Your, your guests can't see me, but I'm a dark-skinned Black woman. And one of the things people often tell me is that I sound white, <laughs> right? Yeah, and yes, this question. I've had this happen. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, this is, yes, yes. Very familiar <laughs> with this particular narrative. <laughs> yes. And I'm not even going to get into the problematic area of like, what does it mean to sound white, right? It's like, I yeah. sound like me. I'm Black, therefore I sound Black. But we won't get there. But when people tell me I sound white, then it also means that, and that, you know, they love how I speak, et cetera. I worry about what does that mean for my brothers and sisters who don't sound like me, who haven't been socialized. And the reason I sound like this is because I was punished. I was put into speech language classes because people didn't like my accent when I came to the United States. It was somehow problematic. So the people who weren't socialized and or constrained into speaking this way have less opportunities. And we don't acknowledge it. It's like, they don't sound professional. What do you mean they don't sound professional? Well, they're using like, you know, their accent or their language. Well, that's normal speech for someone in their community. Why is that problematic? We don't ever interrogate this. No, then, and that, I'm, I'm glad that your book touches on this because a lot of these artificial divisions have come from people just accepting things without interrogating, right? You mm -hmm. People are literally making laws based on whatever they they were taught and they've assigned this as their values and, and their belief systems but mm -hmm. they don't interrogate it you know I, you I, i'll be in rooms of people that i know don't you know like like you I, you know I, I guess dark brown skin <laughs> and you know i've always been in um rooms where you know i know people don't like my particular skin color for lack of a better word mm -hmm. <laughs> oh we can just call them racist but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but <laughs> but they'll find a way to individualize it, right? You know, because yes. when I first came to the United States, I went to 
a town called Lynchburg, Virginia. So you can think of anything you can think of. And it would be like, you're different. You don't sound like mm -hmm. other Nigerians. Well, at least mm -hmm. you listen. Well, your voice is this. I have a hard time understanding other people. Well, you make more sense. You sound like you'll be just all these mm -hmm. little things that I'm like, mm -hmm. what if by chance I didn't learn how mm -hmm. to speak this way by watching all the American shows? Because in that American middle school I went to, people used to make fun of my name and my accident. So I, fi I figured mm -hmm. I must learn how to pronounce my words this way. What if I just showed up the other way? You would have mm -hmm. dismissed me completely. Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I was still, I, was, I would have still been the same person if I had made different yeah. choices and had the same lived experience. But no, yeah. <laughs> and I think this is one of the challenges. Like when I talk about microaggressions, yeah. this is one of the things where they're so subtle, people don't even recognize you're doing it. And I really like what you said about people individualizing it, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the big microaggressions that I've been working on with folks that I teach is people are saying things like, well, when I ask people where they're from, I'm just being polite, right? Like, look, he's from Nigeria. Why wouldn't I ask him where he's from? And I'm kind of like, it's not about you asking that person where they're from. It's the fact that you're only asking some people where they're from. And you're making a whole bunch of assumptions about why you think it's okay to ask that person versus other people. And they don't get it. And they don't get that like underlying message again around, right. and what are you telling me about my belonging, what you're seeing and what you think is important about me? What are the things that you're not seeing or um, engaging with because you're only focused on the things that you see mark me as different than you, Yeah. right? No, brilliant. And and, and this feeds into the next question because you, you've done quite a bit of work on understanding brain patterns mm -hmm. and, and the impact on inclusion and exclusion. So what's happening in the brain if someone is doing that as they're deciding who's included and excluded? Yeah. Well, one of the challenges is that once we start to like have our in-group and our out-group, we have less empathy towards them, right? Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's been so much research already that shows things like this is life and death. Doctors give people who are Black less pain medication and less appropriate treatment unconsciously. They're not kind of going Black person, therefore they don't feel pain or therefore they're faking it. They do it unconsciously. So we automatically start to hold that person with so much less empathy and we make decisions that impact that person's life without even realizing we do it. And so the, the way that unconscious bias operates so automatically below our conscious awareness if we don't even know that that could happen, if we don't have a system in place that helps us interrupt some of these like automatic um, tracks that we find ourselves on, we do harm. Yeah, harm, 100%. And, um, and, and I think that harm part is the, the, the part people have a hard time reconciling with because mm -hmm. some people hear it as, you're telling me that the way I've done things and the way I am is now something that needs to be quote unquote canceled. Mm -hmm. But they don't see the other side of, well, if you keep doing this, that person mm -hmm. doesn't have access. That person sees less of themselves. That person goes, you know, they just go down the other way. And and I, mm -hmm. I use I think about the book bans, for example. I'm just going to go to that specific example. If you have a certain power mm -hmm. as a governor or an elected official to take away books from curriculum that allow people to see themselves mm -hmm. so that they can grow up in multiple ways and not have to think, do what you and I did, like have mm -hmm. to learn how to code switch a way to speak in a quote-unquote accepted way what are you by default saying that the yeah. history that exists currently in the in the curriculum is complete and doesn't it doesn't need oh. interrogation or interruption 
right? So that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, it, it, that's the brain. So you have to be able to see it the other side and question well, why do mm -hmm. I think this person is okay and that's not okay? Mm -hmm. I don't know that we do that. Yeah. I, I mean, what you're talking about is one of the heartbreaks that I have, right? Because when I think about things like, and again, using your book ban example, I remember when the Stop Woke Act in Florida came out. And yes. part of the idea was we don't want to make young white children grow up feeling bad about themselves. And so we can't have, you know, this, this stuff that talks about these problematic areas of history. Uh -huh. And I'm kind of thinking, well, what about all the black and brown children who are growing up feeling bad about themselves because they don't see themselves reflected. They don't see anything that like celebrates their heritage. You're basically choosing who's going to feel bad. And what if we did it the other way? Like what if we even questioned that narrative that learning about history means I'm going to feel bad. I had a person that I interviewed yesterday who was an educator in the classroom. And he said when he worked with his unit on racism, there was a white student who came to his class and who said, thank you so much for having me do this work. It was hard. It was tough. It made me really think about my family and some of the beliefs that they had, but it helped me also see them with compassion. And it helped me have language to be able to talk with them about what they were doing, not to demonize them, not to feel bad about myself, but to see that I could be an agent of change. So the, even the idea that just having this conversation means I'm going to feel bad and that there's nothing else I can do is problematic. Of yeah. course, there's stuff we can do once we raise awareness. And that's the thing. We can never stop raising awareness because I, the, what we thought we knew before isn't what we know now. And um, right. I, I think sometimes we have like selective this is where I really believe people aren't reflecting on their privilege. We have the selective you know, right. choices we make. Oh, yeah, with the iPhones, we can update our iPhones. Yeah, of course. And technology <laughs> and get a new brand. <laughs> but we can't update our own thinking. I'm like, but mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, but it, yeah. it th that that's a, I know, that's often a common sense approach from my vantage point. And then it's mm -hmm. important when you look at that, there's a particular fear that they might be operating under. But I always invite people to, question whether that fear is real or imagined mm -hmm. uh, but, you know that's another question well, <laughs> one of the things that i talk about are some of like the blocks <laughs> that i consider them like blocks to connection and one of those blocks is just kind of either or thinking that i'm gonna yes, win or yes. you're gonna win and this is one of the things that i see playing out in what you're describing that people are so used to like I have things my way. I have, I've been centered, like my experiences have been centered, that if I tell you, you know what, hey, you've been missing a whole swath of like, human history and experience, people don't see that as you adding something to me. They see it as, well, if my attention goes there, it's no longer with me. You're taking something away. Yeah. And yeah. that's like one of the big moves that we could make is so how do we see ourselves as not subtracting from your experience but we're actually adding to it we're giving you something more to consider yeah it's so funny i have a piece i'm a i do i'm a spoken word poet as well so i have a piece called either or versus both and and i call Ooh. it a connection barrier so it's so funny hearing you say that but I, it doesn't surprise me because I, i'm sure that's a barrier that you and i whether we find frustrating or not we can see based on the experience where the responses we often get is like, well, I'm not saying you don't have to keep being white. Right. <laughs> I never said right. that. I just said, this is how to expand the story of blackness or an Asian heritage or any mm -hmm. They're not mutually exclusive here. Right. And so that's and why I'm always about that. Yeah. It's also that I'm also not saying that because you're white, you're bad. Right. 
But I am saying that white supremacy has been problematic. So people need to be able to understand that. Like when I talk about race as being constructed, it also means that I look at you as a white person and I look at me as a black person and I'm not seeing either one is inherently bad. But I am saying the ways that we've used race, if you're not able to recognize that and the privilege you have, that's where it's problematic. Well, I mean, you call it the blindfold of privilege, right? Mm-hmm. What are those specific blindfolds that we can be, we need to be aware of and yeah. not can remove them? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so, so many. I think about it more as when I put on that blindfold of privilege, it means that I'm only seeing the world through my perspective. And there's so many things I'm just not even going to be aware of. And one of the ones that I talk about, and it's not even related to race, but I think it's one that people really get, is being homeless. I work, like you mentioned, with the homeless disenfranchised population in San Francisco. And I think about those really cold days. You know, San Francisco's in California. People think we have great days, but it gets cold. And when I'm in my nice little house and I've got my heat on, I'm not aware even. It's like my house and my heat becomes a blindfold. I'm not aware of how cold it is outside. I'm not aware of like how people are struggling. And so it's very easy for me to go through and be like, well, why is that person like in the library smelling it up, right? They should not, they, they need to go somewhere else. They need to get a shower or whatever. I'm like, well, I don't even have the awareness to understand that this is the only place this person can stay warm and stay safe. And that they don't have the options that I do to go into my house and be warm. I'm not aware of all of the different reasons why somebody is standing in that, in this, uh, how do you say, the entrance to a store that I'm trying to get into because it, it creates a barrier to the wind. I just think about them as like, oh, they're blocking my passage. So we're not even aware of the reasons why people make some of the choices that they make and how, if I were in that same position, I would end up making the same choice because I don't have to think about that. I don't have to be aware of it. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I'm chuckling because I, I love psychology, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of what I do study mm-hmm. human behavior, and you do the same thing. I was listening mm-hmm. to a podcast where we did someone said the same thing you said, and it was about psychology. Mm-hmm. Is people don't think enough about what they'll do in the position of the people they're judging. I, yes. I'm, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but that's what I mm-hmm. admit. Yeah. Yes, this is one of the things like. You've you've kind of made me think about two things in psychology. So one is the fundamental attribution error. And it's like one of those biases that I want everyone to be aware of, right? So it's the one that basically says, when I do something that I don't like, I have lots of reasons and understanding about why I'm doing it. So if I didn't respond to your email, I'm like, okay, I was swamped. There was all this stuff going on and I missed it. But if you don't respond to my email, I'm like, oh, you're not professional. And if I have internalized white supremacy. I'm like, those black folks, they're never on top of stuff. And we don't give people the same grace. We don't apply the same perspective that we apply to ourselves, to other people. And so that's one of the moves that I tell people to do. When you start judging another person, and especially if you start hearing yourself saying, that group does this, stop and ask yourself, did I ever do that? Did I ever not respond to an email? Was I ever too loud in a group? Was I ever late to a meeting? And why was that? And is it possible that that person can be doing it for the exact same reasons I did it? So just finding a way to be able to to give the person the same grace that we give ourselves is huge. Yeah, yeah, uh, this is so beautiful. I I don't want to give I don't want to give away all your books. So uh, <laughs> for for anyone interested in, in definitely getting more insights, where can they get your two books? And mm-hmm. can you distinguish between the two books so that people know what they're getting? 
Sure thing. So everyone should go to antiracistconversations.com. That's the book website. And there you'll find how to order both books. You'll find a little video trailer about the books. There's lots of information about the books. And as you've mentioned, there are two books. The book that I wrote by myself, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, basically outlines a whole bunch of the stuff we've been talking about today, right? So it talks about white supremacy. It talks about microaggressions. It kind of gives you the theory to understand and to be able to talk with other people about these um, issues. And then it also outlays a framework for how to have conversations about this. There's like a dialogic process that I describe in the book. But what we also noticed with my co-author, Sarah Payton, is that even when I've given people this knowledge, we have our blocks and like, okay, I know I want to say something. I know I should be saying something. And all of a sudden I find myself paralyzed and unable to speak up, right? So it's that kind of like frozen moment when I'm thinking, why didn't I say something? And so we wrote the handbook to help people explore what are some of the barriers that you might experience in being able to speak up? And here are some exercises to help you dismantle those barriers, some um, ways to work through this so that you can feel empowered and know how to speak up when it when you need to. That's amazing. I mean, I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. But, uh, you know, I always love having people like yourself come on here because you have both the lived experience and professional experience. But mm. and even in addition to that, you you have uh, an amazing, <laughs> empathetic way and compassionate mm. way of seeing yourself and encouraging others to find ways to love themselves as well. And and for those mm. wondering if compassion is part of the curriculum of the book, yes, she talks a lot about compassion and self-compassion. These are essential mm. tools for anti-racist work, as, as many of you are starting to realize. But I like that you created that framework as well for that. Thank you. I think that is essential. That so much of the work today, which I think has made it hard for people to engage with it, is around kind of blaming and judging ourselves, blaming and judging other people. But if you're like me, the minute somebody starts to judge me, I'm just like, okay, I'm done. I'm out of here, right? Even right, if I'm blaming right. myself, I just bounce. And so I try to, in the book, really help people understand that the way that we create the, the opening for change it's through compassion and self-compassion, which is not saying that what you're doing is okay, but just saying, if I can understand why you're doing it, if I can understand why I'm doing the things I don't like, then I have a path to change. Yeah, I love that. The path to change is listening to this podcast and sharing it with all your friends. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but no, I, I, my final question is my mission statement reframed as a question. Uh, so, Roxy, I was going to say Dr. Mm -hmm. Maddie, but... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Roxy, how do you use your difference to make a difference? Yeah, one of the big ways I use my difference, and I think it really embodies my approach, is that I want to show up and be real. I will always tell people, I will use my lived experience, I will share my stories, I will be vulnerable, I will share the mistakes I've made, because I want people to see that it's possible to make mistakes and to learn and grow. I want to be able to gently coach people and say, hey, you know, I see you did something I don't like. Let me tell you about it because I want you to be able to do better. And so being able to be real and authentic and vulnerable is one of the ways that I invite other people to take that risk for themselves. I love it. That that realness, that authenticity and, and vulnerability goes a long way. But uh, I mm -hmm. want to thank you. Thank you so much for blessing my day. This has been a real refreshing conversation. Uh, same for me. And thank you for having me. I can't wait to listen to more of this. <laughs> no, seriously. I, I think I think it's really going to open a lot of people's minds and hearts. So um, I'm humbled and grateful. So thank you so much. And uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I just want to wish you an amazing, successful book launch. And I can't wait for the episode to get here. Thank you. All right. Kings, queens, and royalty. Until next time, use your difference.
to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.